alive. That's at the heart of our faith, isn't it? Our Savior is not dead, he's alive. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins, but by his grace, we are alive. And these bodies, they, they will die unless Christ returns. But by his grace again, we will be what? Alive forevermore. I think it's fair to say that that word, that theme is the most significant one in our Bible. The idea of life, of living, of being alive. That's the reason we have our Bible because God is telling us how he is going to bring us back to life to live with him forever. Last week, Stacy mentioned that the cross was the central theme in the Bible and in history, and it is. But it is only because it is verified by the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the cross would be a, a poignant martyr's death, but from eternity's perspective, it would be meaningless. But Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He's alive. And let's read that story today. It's an exciting story out of John chapter 20. I would invite you to rise if you're able so that we can focus together on God's word and be attentive to how he's speaking to us in it. I'll be reading the first 18 verses. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are so grateful for your word that you have given this to us, this revelation of you, your character, and your love for us. 
I pray, Father, as we go through this passage this morning, that we will, uh, not only will our minds be captivated by the truth, but our hearts and our spirits would be enraptured by the beauty of your holiness, Lord. I ask that you not only, that we not only meditate on the word of God, but that we encounter the God of the word. And as you promised in your inspired word, we pray that this would uh, be profitable in our lives for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. May all of that happen by your grace and for your glory. Speak through me this morning, Father, only those words that you would have your people to hear. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, I preached a sermon entitled, The Power of the Resurrection. Rissa pointed out to me yesterday that it was almost exactly four years ago. It was October 21st. <laughs> so maybe Stacy has something in mind for me in October's. I don't know. But the point of that message was because of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, it enabled Paul, and we were in Acts, a series in Acts um, chapter 25, to be, as he would later say, whipped five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned in toil and hardship and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Sounds a little like the suffering we were talking about last week, doesn't it? He was able to do that because of the power of the resurrection. Well, today, and I did not mean to keep these all in peas, it just worked out that way, we're going to talk about the proofs of the resurrection and the promise of the resurrection. So I'm going to begin with the proofs, and I'm actually using this in two ways. I'm going to find some things through the text that we just read to help us become even more convinced in our minds that there is proof there that Jesus really did rise from the dead. But then I also want to talk about what that proves. So we'll begin by looking at the evidences of the resurrection. There's been a lot of books written on this. You may recognize the names of Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, Gary Habermas, I would suggest, recommend Gary Habermas's book on the case for the resurrection of Jesus in case you encounter people who don't believe. You want to be prepared uh, always with an answer for why you believe what you believe. There's, but there's lots of sensible evidence. There's credible evidence, irrefutable evidence that these guys have put together. But for me, always, the one that has been the most just overwhelmingly convincing is, like I just said, the power of the resurrection to change someone's life, especially the lives of those people who saw him, saw the risen Lord, and were convinced of that to the point that they were willing to give their own lives. You don't do that as a joke or as a, if you're pretending he did that because they believed it. Many books have also been written trying to harmonize the Gospels, particularly the account for the resurrection. This is the part that is that, that those who are refuting the Bible are most anxious to be able to, to, to disavow is that Jesus actually was resurrected. And so there have been a lot of people that have tried to write books about how we can harmonize the different accounts. But I also actually feel that the diversity is an evidence. If they were trying to perpetuate a, a lie, you know, they would have all kind of said the same thing so that their stories matched. But instead, they come at it from different perspectives in a way that never contradict, but add to what the others have said. And it reminds me, you may have heard of the, the uh, Indian proverb of the six blind men and the elephant. And they, uh, six blind men are wandering down the road, presumably with sticks, 
and they come across something in their path and they're trying to figure out what it is. And so they each reach out and touch it. And the first man touches the side of the elephant and says, it feels like a wall. The other man's touching the leg and says, no, I think it's the trunk of a tree. One's touching the tusk, he thinks it's a spear. Another the trunk and thinks that it's a snake. Another the tail, thinks it's a robe. And another the, the, uh, the ear and thinks it's a fan. None of them is wrong in what they're perceiving, but they, none of them have the whole story. But we get a fuller picture of the, of the story of the resurrection when we look at all of the different uh, gospels that we have available, the different accounts. So now as we go through this text, I just want to pull a few things out before we move on to the promise of the resurrection. Uh, this is one of those instances right at the beginning. It says that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. The other gospels say that there were several women there. But you notice John's gospel doesn't say that only Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. So it's okay to say, I can say I came to church today. I can also say my family came to church today. They're both true. They don't contradict each other. And Mary, even in verse 2, uses the word we. She said, we don't know where they've taken him. So she even alludes to the fact that there were more there with her. And so she ran and went to Simon and the other disciple, who we know to be John, the one whom Jesus loves. And it makes me wonder if they were together, and it makes me wonder what happened over that weekend. Did, did Peter talk to John about his betrayal of Christ? Can you imagine the conversations they must have had that weekend? And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was likely there too. Remember last week what we heard, right? Behold your mother, behold your son. And then it says that Mary went to live with John after that. Imagine that conversation that weekend. But then Mary comes to them and she says, they have taken the Lord and we don't know where they have laid him. This is not a hopeful declaration. She's not coming there saying, he's risen. Far from it. This is sorrowful. Where's the body? The other gospels say that when they, they were coming early that morning with spices to adorn the body, they expected to find a body. So they're not hopeful at this point. They're sorrowful. And then the text goes on to say that Peter and John ran together, and John's writing this, and he says, and John ran faster. Sounds just like a guy, doesn't it? And John outran the other. But I also think that, that these details are very proving to me of the story. You wouldn't put details like that in a story unless you were re reporting the truth. And then we see the two distinct personalities as they approach the tomb. John, he pauses to ponder, but Peter plows right in, and we see a real clear example of their character there. But when we get to this passage about the cloths, I think that's very telling as well. It's, it says that they're folded, and the face cloth is folded in a separate area from the body cloth. Now, if they, the bad guys, had taken Jesus' body away... They're not going to take the time, especially when there's a Roman guard contingent out front, to fold the laundry. And also, if it's the good guys, if it was his friends that were trying to take his body to perpetuate a story of him coming back to life, they're not going to take him out naked. So the cloth alone is a very strong evidence. Verse 8 says that John saw and believed he believed that the tomb was empty. In other words, he believed Mary's report about the empty tomb because verse 9 says, they as yet did not understand that he must rise from the dead. Remember, we saw a few chapters ago, they didn't even understand from the scriptures that he must die. 
let alone that he would rise again. Then the second section of that passage starts talking about Mary, and it says she's weeping outside the tomb. Presumably, as they ran on to the tomb, she walked along behind them. Perhaps by the time she got there, they had already left. And she looks in and sees two angels. And I also think it's telling that she's overcome with grief that she doesn't even acknowledge that she's seeing two angels. Any other time when you see an angel in Scripture, it's a pretty, a pretty shocking event. It gets your attention. Here she's just still concerned, where did they take the body? And the angels address her as woman, and Jesus will too in a couple of verses. This isn't a demeaning uh, way of, of describing uh, a name or anything like that. We don't really have an English equivalent. It's kind of like ma'am, but it's not like a southern boy would call his mama ma'am. It's more like a southern boy would call uh, another woman ma'am. So there's no, there's no uh, maternal or intimate connection. It's just a courtesy, a polite uh, way of addressing someone. But again, you see her hopelessness here. She tells the angels, we don't know where the body is. Then Jesus is there, and perhaps she just sensed there was someone there, glanced over. He asked her what she's looking for, and she says the same thing. We're looking for the body. Where's the body? And then, and then. He calls her by name. He calls each of us by name. And his sheep know his voice. Instantly, she turns around. Rabboni. And I don't like this ESV translation that says that it means teacher. That makes it sound like he was just her Bible study class leader. No, it really means master, Lord. That's what the word means. She was acknowledging this is really Jesus. And some of the manuscripts go on to say, and she reached out as if to touch him. And that would explain what happens in the next verse when he says, do not cling to me. Now, there have been all kinds of interpretations and attempts to interpret that verse. And most of them are wacky and unsubstantiated. They'll say things like, well, he had to go to heaven and do something, and then he had to come back. That's pure speculation. It's nowhere in Scripture. The best way to understand this is to understand that he's saying, you don't have to hold on to me. I haven't left yet. But go tell the disciples, because I will be leaving. That's all he's saying. He's saying, you don't have to cling to me. She probably was holding on to his feet. She did that in an earlier passage, and we know from the other accounts that the women did fall at his feet and grab his feet and worship him. But he's saying, I haven't left yet. I'm going to be around. This isn't a spontaneous moment where now I'm here, now I'm gone. Go tell the apostles to come back. We We need to see each other. And it makes me think when she goes back and says, I've seen the Lord. I don't know how many of you remember that song by Larnell Harris and Sandy Patty, I've Just Seen Jesus. Oh, Google it when you get home. I listened to it yesterday, and it's just amazing. And it helps you to kind of get a sense of what that must have been like for Mary. To go from that such grief that she keeps telling everyone, where's the body? Where's the body? Where's the body? Doesn't even care that she's talking to angels. Where's the body? To suddenly he's standing there in front of her calling her by name. What a moment that must have been. Well, the resurrection proves things as well. First, it proves he's not just a good man. There's a book out. I haven't read it, I confess, but I have friends that have told me that that they recommend it. The title is The Undomesticated God. I just like that title. The undomesticated God. Because I believe that's one of our biggest errors is to try to tame or to try to domesticate 
God, to, to bring him down to our level so that we can relate with, with him a little better and understand him a little bit more. The resurrection proves that you can't do that. He didn't just defy death, he defeated death. He's like us, or actually more likely we're like him, made in his image, but he was like us in the human flesh, but he is not like us in so many ways, and the resurrection makes that clear. Further, if he was faking it, he would be anything but a good man. When he saw the people that went out and and gave their lives for what would have been a lie. So as C.S. Lewis famously said, he doesn't give you that option of calling him a good man. In fact, quite the opposite, it proves that he's God. Romans 1.4, Paul says that he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection. The resurrection authenticated his divine nature. It proved his innocence. It confirmed the truth that he had been speaking. And it fulfilled all of those prophecies about the Messiah that nobody understood up until that point. And it also proves that his ways are not our ways. You know, the the crucifixion was a public spectacle, right? There were the people that hated him, calling out curses against him. There were the people that loved him, weeping and and crying out. Everybody saw this man that had been causing so much of attention throughout the area. They all saw him hanging up there on that cross. But the resurrection was a pretty intimate affair. He talks to Mary. He sees the apostles a couple of times in the upper room. He sees James. The two guys on the way to Emmaus, if you read the account, they were his followers too. And then the only, and then at the, at the ascension on, on the hill, then the only other time we know of that they were there, Paul says he appeared to more than 500 people. But read the verse. It says 500 of the brethren, of the brothers and sisters. He showed up at a church meeting, basically. There's never any indication that he appeared anywhere to anyone other than those who were already his followers. Why? Why didn't he walk down the streets of Jerusalem? Why didn't he stride up the steps to Caesar's palace and just silence all of his critics? It proves that his ways are not our ways. We wouldn't have done it that way. But instead, he caused a ripple that would gradually grow and swell as these people told other people, told other people, till people even now are telling other people, until it became wave, even tidal waves crashing over every nation around the world, until ultimately every nation, tribe, people, and tongue will have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and the story of the resurrection. His ways are not our ways, but his ways are always right. And if it was intimate among the earthlings, it was trumpeted in the spiritual realm. John also writes about this in Revelation 5. Listen to what he says. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one. In heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. That's the resurrection. That's the resurrection. As, as for Satan and his minions, you know, they, they knew scripture, right? They, they were there when it was being written. You would think they would know that the Messiah had to be risen. But maybe God blinded their eyes or not. We don't know that for sure. But we do know that Satan actively pursued Jesus' death. In John 13, Satan is the one that is said to have put it into Judas' heart to betray Jesus. But whatever they may have thought they knew or thought they could change or thought they could control, they were wrong, but they were clearly aware that they had failed. Because death had no victory. The grave had no victory. Death had no sting. Jesus was indeed victorious, and everyone in the spiritual realm knew that. But if you go back to verse 9 in our passage, you see that they had not yet believed, the disciples had not yet believed or understood that scriptures say that Jesus has to rise again, the Messiah. As I said a minute ago, they didn't even understand that he had to die. They were still grappling with that but he did have to die he had to die he was born to die and now we're going to consider why and that's the promise of the resurrection the promise of the resurrection is union between sinners and a holy god something that is impossible apart from the resurrection Union between sinners, unholy sinners, and a holy God. And I want to talk about three elements of that promise. The first is that God's justice was satisfied. On the cross, God's justice was satisfied. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The blood of Jesus covers our sins. Hallelujah. As the old hymn says, I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them well and thousands more, but Jehovah findeth none. Though the restless foe accuses, sins recounting like a flood, every charge our God refuses, Christ has answered with his blood. How beautiful is that? Our sins are forgiven because of the blood of Jesus, but it is the resurrection that affirms that truth. If Christ didn't rise again, it would mean that God was not satisfied. And this gets into uh, the idea of the active and passive obedience of Christ. And Dan even mentioned this in his prayer, the perfect life of Jesus. Too often when we're recounting the gospel, we're too quick to get to the cross. The gospel begins in the manger. The gospel begins there because in order for God's justice to be satisfied, Jesus had to live a perfect, sinless life. Every step, every day within the confines of the law that the Father had laid out. He had to obey every day. And so the gospel is indeed the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. 1 Timothy 3.16, we may have that on the screen. No, nope. okay. Uh, 
This was an early confession in the, uh, in the Christian church. It says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So there you go. See, I, I, I told you the truth. That's what it says. But the point is vindicated. That's the same word really as justified. All right, it's translated here, vindicated. <clears throat> Throughout the Old Testament, the saints had hoped for the resurrection of the righteous. In Isaiah 26, it says, your dead shall live. Their bodies will rise. In Daniel, it said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, the Sadducees denied this. If you've ever wondered what the difference was between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees did not believe in life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> Sorry. I learned it as a kid, and it sticks. But that is a good way to keep them separate in your mind. But Jesus answered the Sadducees in Matthew 22. He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. In other words, he said he's, he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. I am, because they're not dead. So the Old Testament taught the resurrection of the righteous, but we all know there's none righteous, right? No, not one. What to do? And if Christ was not raised, well, that means that he was also not deserving of that vindication, of that justification. But he was. He was alive on that morning when Mary first saw him. Death couldn't hold him because it had no claim on him, and it has no claim on us, and that's the promise of the resurrection. The second element here is, and I didn't mean to make these rhyme, but the first is that justice of God is satisfied. The second is that the covenant of God is ratified. Look at verse 17. The second half, well, when it says, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Not our father and our God. By definition, man has a God. Because of the creature, creator, uh, situation, all creatures have a creator, all creatures have a God. And so Jesus, the man, could call God his God. That's why he's breaking it out here. But your God, when he says your God, that's the language of the covenant. All the way back in Genesis 17, again in Exodus, in several places, God declares, I, you will be my people and I will be your God. Will be. It will happen. All of this is in anticipation of the incarnation of Christ and the cross and the tomb. Christ had purchased the covenant promise in his blood. Which is why every month we hear those words again. This cup is the new covenant. His blood purchased the covenant that was promised eons ago. Jesus is the covenant head. 
And it can get a little confusing, this language, but it's in the Bible. And so it's good to understand that there's really only two kinds of people in the world. Those that are in Adam and those who were in Adam but are now in Christ. All right, God sees everyone through the lens of either Adam's sin and therefore we're sinners or through the righteousness of Christ, therefore we have been uh, we are, have his imputed righteousness for us so that we are clean in his eyes. And we, it might sound foreign, but we kind of do the same thing. When we talk about countries being at war, we really think that the whole country is at war with the other country. When in reality, there's some farmer out in the field somewhere who doesn't give, it, doesn't give a hoot about the war, right? But we say that, or even more poignantly, when, when dad gets a job in another city and the family has to pack up and move, right? I don't have a job in the other city. My dad does. But I got to go. So we understand that. If you want to see it in Scripture, look at the story of Achan in Joshua 7. Uh, that's when the, the people of Israel were supposed to defeat the, the, the town of Ai. And, and instead, Ai defeats them. Come to find out, God had said, don't take anything from there. And a guy named Achan did. He saw some nice things that he liked, and so he kept them. But the way that God divided and demonstrated who it was, he divided all of Israel first by tribe, then by clan, then by household, then by man. And then Achan and all that was his, including his family, were destroyed. God takes it that seriously. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. Everyone, God is, God is a God to everyone in the sense that there's that creature-creator relationship. But to say that he is our God is covenant language and we are in him and in the covenant. The covenant no longer requires temples and priests and sacrifices. All that pointed to the one who would really take away sin. So, I'll say this again. In the resurrection, God's covenant was uh, ratified because God's justice was satisfied. God's covenant was ratified because God's justice was satisfied. And when he says, my God... We see in Acts 2 that God raised him from the dead. When he says, your God, he means he's going to raise you too. My God and your God has that kind of covenant importance here in this verse. But again, look at that phrase. He says, go to my father and your father. If I call my sisters and say I was talking with my parents, I don't say, yeah, I was just on the phone with my father and your father. I say, I was talking to our father, our dad. So there's a meaning here too. Your father is the language of adoption. Ephesians 2.19 says, Then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're in God's family. Oh, that is such a precious, precious truth. Jesus' relationship to the Father is different from our relationship. Again, that's why he said, my Father and your Father. Um, long ago in the church, there was some, some heresies. One of them was called Arianism. But really all it was is Arian was, that was teaching that Jesus was like an adopted son of, of God. And so the church put together a creed called the Athanasian Creed that, that really outlines the orthodox position of the Trinity. And there's a line in there that says, Jesus is equal to the Father as regards divinity, yet less than the Father as regards humanity. 
So as regards his divinity, of course, he is co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's what we understand with the Trinity. But because he was a, a being, his flesh is less than a divine being. This is the, how we understand the nature of Christ. He's holy God, and yet he's holy man. Don't try too hard to wrap your head around that. It's not something that we can ever really grasp, but it's what the scriptures teach. But this is the incredible promise of the resurrection. We, sinners, are brought into that, that union. As we are in Christ, we participate in that union, and we can call the Holy Father, Holy God, our Father. John is always fascinated by this, even in his epistle. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. What is the manner of love? It's the promise of adoption. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Hey. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for what? Adoption. That was our destiny from before the world, before he created anything. He said, I am going to adopt them. They are going to become a part of our family forever. God loved the world, sent his son to die that we might be alive. And not just alive, but alive as joint heirs with Christ. If you ever ponder that and you see how that blows your mind. <laughs> Again in verse 17, he tells Mary, go to my brothers. Wow. In John 15, he said, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. How awesome is that to be friends of the king, with the king of glory? That, that enough, that's enough. Being a servant is enough. Being a friend is even better. But here he says, go to my brothers. Because now we're in the family. Now we've been adopted. And in Hebrews 2.11 he says, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Well, I would be. If I could open up my life on display for everyone, I'd be ashamed to call myself my brother in the face of a holy God. But he's not. Adoption changes everything. There was a professor, his name was Charles Hodge. Uh, he was at Princeton back when Princeton was still a, bul a bulwark of solid theology. And the, uh, the university gave him a, uh, a house on campus. And he was already pretty well known, written a lot of books that were being used as textbooks and still are to this day. And they, uh, they asked him, they said, Professor, you know, let us know if there's anything you want us to change, anything, anything at all. We, you know, we want you to be happy here. He said, no, everything looks good. Well, one thing, um, on the door of my study, can you lower the doorknob? Because I've told my kids they can always have access to me. Isn't that precious? Adoption changes everything. You become part of the family. And then Paul mentioned every spiritual blessing, the blessings of adoption. That might be it. That didn't make it. Okay. 
Yes, it did. Okay, just, just a delay. Okay. Look at some of these. These are just some. We could go on and on and on all day. But look at some of these blessings of being adopted into the family. You, O oh Lord, are in the midst of us and we're called by your name. And in whom we have boldness and access with confidence, God lowered the doorknobs. Casting our anxieties on him because he cares for you. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And yeah, I put this here as a spiritual blessing. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. That's a blessing. Because we are being conformed by our loving father. Even if sometimes the process can be painful. We are being conformed to be like our elder brother, the Lord Jesus. We have been adopted into the family of God. And we will be part of that family for eternity. If, that is, we place saving faith in the resurrected Lord. We are closer to that eternity right now than we've ever been before, literally. With every passing moment, we are closer to our eternity. We are closer right now to being face-to-face before Jesus, closer than we've ever been before. We are not eternal beings, but we are immortal beings. We are born, but we will never die. The flesh may die, will die, if the Lord tarries. But our inner being, who we are inside, will continue to exist forever. On the last day, all flesh will rise, either, as Daniel said, to everlasting uh, life or to everlasting condemnation. When he was talking to Martha about the death of Lazarus in John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection, and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I would end with Jesus' own question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that though you may die, you will live? Because, beloved, he is alive. And we, if we believe on him, will be alive forever and ever with him. Do you believe? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what a blessing to be able to call you our Father and our God. To know that the blood of Jesus covered our sins and that that sacrifice was acceptable in your sight so that we don't have to pay the eternal price for our sin. Jesus already paid it. And how precious to call you our Father. To know that we are indeed children of the Most High God who with just a word created all the heavens and the earth, who can raise the dead, who can work miracles, who can do all of these things, 
is our Father. And you love us. You love us enough to be with us every moment of every day. To comfort us. To encourage us. To strengthen us. I pray, Lord, that in this time together that we have, in fact, heard something from you. And I pray that it will be impactful in the lives of some, if not all, of the people gathered here this morning. And I pray that no one will leave here remembering anything except what you would have us to remember. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name.